0: Alabama and the sprawling yard of the Alabama dry dock and shipbuilding company where some of the biggest ships afloat can be hauled out of the water and given as they say a shave and a haircut they perform much more difficult building and repair jobs here but even a once-over lightly a shave and a haircut is a sizable undertaking
1: Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Citizen Reporter, a podcast with voices from around the world. I'm the host, Mark Fonseca Rendeiro, they also call me Bicycle Mark, around the internet. And today, we're actually going to an issue that's happening now, that has been happening, but on this podcast, we talked about it 10 years ago, the issue is the breaking down of ships, where ships go when they're too old and they've got to be put to rest. We're going to talk with the people that are watching what's going on and it's alarming and it involves all of us all over the world. So without further ado, let's get to it.
2: My name is Patrizia Heidegger, and as the Executive Director of the NGO Shipbreaking Platform, uh, I fight against dirty and dangerous shipbreaking practices around the world.
3: My name is Ingvall Jensen, I am the Policy Director of the NGO Shipbreaking Platform and have been working on this issue for more than 10 years.
1: Here we are in 2016, a lot of people that listen to my podcast will probably remember way back to 2006. Back in those days, and you guys may remember, um, it was the Clemenceau, the, the aircraft carrier from the French Navy that was going to this place called Alang. And at that time, for me, and I guess many of my listeners, that was when ship break- breaking really, I don't know, came to the fore, at least for a little while. And of course, shipbreaking has been an issue for, for many years You guys are in the business of following, watching, reporting on, and that's one major reason I wanted to speak with you today. Here we are, October 2016, shipbreaking is back in the news. We could say it never left, but we know how this news media works these days where to begin I mean uh, first of all since those days in 2006 uh, the last 10 years where are we with the world of shipbreaking how would you characterize it right now
2: yeah so you're you're right in saying that uh, the issue has been uh, on the news for for quite a while it's not it's not a new issue it's not a an issue that uh, nobody has been uh, aware of actually um, many many years before the Clemenceau case, Helped to raise uh, the issue in the in the media. Um, the first investigations that Greenpeace organised to um, to find out more about uh, substandard shipbreaking practices took already place in the li- late 1990s, um, and already then, when Greenpeace researched uh, in in China and in India at the time, they raised the issue with, with the shipping industry. So, um, also the the industry and policymakers have been aware of this issue for for two decades, actually. Um, So, if you take that into consideration, it's actually quite sad to see that uh, we haven't yet found uh, a real solution to the problem. Uh, Our organization uh, analyzes the figures of how many ships go for breaking every year. Um, So we have a very precise overview of, of the actual practices. Uh, where the ship owners located, uh, when and where do they sell their ships? Where do they end up? And unfortunately, we haven't really seen a change in the trend. Uh, the trend is still that uh, around 70% or more of the world's obsolete tonnage ends up on beaches in South Asia. A- Asia. So, if you if you look at these figures, uh, there hasn't been any of substantial change or or improvement over all these over all these years. Mm-hmm. Um, however, at the same time, there have been, um, they say, encouraging developments in terms of um, uh, legal regulation of, of the problem. Um, so, what we have what we have been focusing on in the last years uh, is uh, the European ship recycling regulation. So, at the European Union level, policymakers have understood that uh, especially the European Union has a has a responsibility to find solutions for the issue. Um, I mean, 40% of the world's ships are owned by European shipping lines, so the European Union has understood that they have to do something about it. Uh, so in the last years, we have been closely following different uh, legal developments, and uh, the European Ship Recycling Regulation has been the most uh, promising one without yet having kind of delivered a, a solution to to the problem
1: yeah i'd like i'd like to bring these places like Alang in India comes to mind and actually by all means you should tell me about where in the world you mentioned uh, I believe South Asia but uh, by all means be specific about what places are are heavily impacted by ship breaking and I say impacted right because that's where a lot of it happens that's where their environment their work uh, is done and I'd also like to know in that same context if you could anything you could do to describe these places because of course it's always challenging to bring this to life not just through audio but also in our in our media environment where you say shipbreaking and maybe not everybody feels it but when you start to explain how it looks maybe people really feel it.
2: Shipbreaking um the global shipbreaking industry is quite concentrated in, in a couple of places. So as I said before 70% of uh, the old ships end up on beaches in India, Bangladesh and and Pakistan. So, Bangladesh and India are the two major destinations for, for old ships. Um, and then the, the, the rest, so another 30%, um, are sold to ship recycling yards in China, in Turkey, and then there are also ship recycling yards uh, in Europe, and uh, in the US, and in a couple of other places. Um, so, the, 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 method, the methods used, but also the, the infrastructure, the technology in place, um, which you find in these places, is, is very um, different. So um, the, the main method used is the so-called beaching method. So that means that uh, the old ships that uh, arrive at the beaches of India, Bangladesh and Pakistan, they are uh, driven onto the beach, they're grounded on, on the beach. Uh, And this is where the the demolition um, then takes place. So they are taken apart right on the beach. Uh, This work is is mainly manual. Um, You can imagine that uh, the intertidal zone of a beach, so basically a mud flat, uh, is not a stable ground on which you can operate large industrial cranes or any kind of other heavy machinery. Um, There's no pier. Um, along which uh, the, the, the ship could be moored. So the ship is stuck uh, in the mud or in, 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 the, in the sand. Um, and this is why the work is, is mainly manual. So the ships are cut apart with uh, torch cutters. So very um, simple, small devices um, by which large sections are cut. Uh, and then these large sections uh, are dropped or crashed down onto the beach. Uh, then they cut down further, and then the, the, the steel parts or the sections uh, are brought up onto the beach with the help of, of winches. And then um, the work continues, and the worker continue to, to kind of cut down um, the sections until they get smaller steel parts, which are then sold on um, to, to the steel mills. So it's, it's a very kind of uh, archaic way of um, um, dismantling a ship. Um, um, when we look at the situation on on the beaches in in South Asia. It's also obvious that uh, if you uh, break down a ship on on a beach, there's no containment for all the pollutants uh, that are uh, inside in the structure of the ship, uh, but also liquid pollutants such as uh, oil residues and sludges and uh, uh, bilge water, etc. So when the ship is cut down, all these very uh, various pollutants uh, are released into the environment. I mean, into the sediments, uh, the sea, and 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 the air. So it's a very, um, uh, yeah, basic. Uh, I mean, method. Uh, actually, a method that doesn't use any kind of modern infrastructure to to recycle the ships.
1: What I find interesting about Uh, one element of this discussion if you can manage to find a discussion on on this issue is that some people may think uh well these are the places that can do it at at an affordable price and so forth but you just brought up that there are places uh including in turkey in china uh in north america in europe that could also do this job so uh just to make it clear why why do uh, so many companies choose for uh, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh?
3: The answer is quite simple. They earn <laughs> a lot more money in sending the selling their vessels to the three beaches in the world that break uh, 70% of the world tonnage. Because these facilities lack proper infrastructure, have low labor costs, um, uh, etc., the ship owners actually get more money for their vessels than they get in selling to China or Turkey. Because we have to remember that the the ship is an asset. It's the steel, the value of the steel, which determines the price of the ship. But, of course, if you're breaking the ship apart without investment in any type of infrastructure or protecting the workers from all the hazards, etc., etc., you'll be able to pay a higher price for that steel. And that's what we're seeing in South Asia.
1: Yeah. I admit I threw a softball on that one, but still I I did it because I want to make sure that these elements are clear. We have so many things in our lives now where we talk about ethical or sustainable, be it food, be it, you know, so many elements of our lives today and ships are a huge part of our lives. Yet it seems to me from what you're telling me so far, the bottom line, the money is still what rules how companies behave. And, And again, it's simple, but I think that it bared some mentioning. (laughs) I want to move to the Maersk element of this story. Uh, it's one company out of many in this world, but it is a particularly large one. I myself am not a big Maersk follower, but of course you see the name, be it on containers or on actual ships all over this world. Um, I, I don't know if the perhaps the economic situation is also worth mentioning in terms of the price of oil and that kind of thing, but Maersk is a company with many ships, and of course that includes ships that need to be decommissioned. Uh, here we come to the present story. What is going on with Maersk and ship recycling that has caused such a, well, an, an uproar?
2: So Maersk, um, I mean, as you've rightly said, is, is a major player, in, uh, especially in the international container ship market, and they're, um, yeah, the largest ship owner in the world. So, I mean, to start with, it, it's important to, um, I mean, to say that's, Whatever Maersk is doing in terms of uh, end-of-life management of their old ships, it is it, very meaningful. It's very—I uh, mean—they they act as a as an example um, for other ship owners, um, which is why we were uh, very happy uh, in 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 recent years that uh, Maersk uh, not only adopted a very progressive ship recycling policy, but they also lived up to it. Um, so the Maersk policy used to be that they sold their end-of-life vessels to to, uh, modern ship recycling facilities, mainly in China, uh, which they selected. um, So they exactly knew where the ship would be going. And they also employed external experts to make sure that all the high requirements uh, are actually being met uh, in the ship recycling facility. So we always deem that as a kind of best practice example, that the company is really taking full responsibility for the end-of-life management. And uh, does not only make sure that the the ship is sold to um, a state of the art yard, but uh, also kind of followed up on the whole recycling process to make sure um, until the, the last day of the recycling process that things would uh, would work out uh, the way the way they wanted to. Um, so yeah, we, we were happy about uh, uh, about that that policy and 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 that practice. Um, then uh, last year, we, uh, we learned that uh, Maersk uh, intended to review or to change its, uh, its ship recycling policy, um, and we learned that they intended to go back to, to India for, for ship recycling. Uh, now first, we understood that they would do some major investments uh, in, in, in the Indian ship recycling industry. Um, that they would probably invest in some kind of a model facility that they would help to build up a yard that uh, is comparable to the very modern yards that, um, that that have been built in China for instance um, so that at the beginning sounded uh, interesting um, because we, we do believe that uh, I mean any country in this world can uh, can set up proper ship recycling facilities and, and do a good job um, so it sounded interesting, but then we, we realized that this was actually not the plan. Even though the, the new Maersk policy um, has been presented as bringing improvements to the shipbreaking industry in India, um, it has been presented as yeah some kind of development aid or support, uh, we pretty quickly understood that uh, Maersk did not intend to actually make any major investment in India. And it turned out that they decided to just accept um, A facility, as as it is, uh, and they pretty quickly then started selling their first vessels to that particular yard um, earlier this year. So this is a normal beaching yard where, as I I said before, I mean, ships are broken down uh, in the intertidal zone of a beach without any kind of modern infrastructure, with all the negative impact for the environment and also for occupational health and safety that that method uh, brings with it. Uh, so we were pretty shocked to see that um, Maersk just decided to to give up give up on its uh, very progressive policy. And I mean, if you look at the company's earlier statements, um, you can see um, its top managers um, uh, saying in the media, be, being very proud about their approach in, in China and, and agreeing with us that a beach is not the place where ships should be recycled. So that they agreed with our position and they were very vocal and very proud about their approach in the past. So uh, yeah, it was very um, shocking to see that they made this U-turn uh, to go back uh, to India, and we understand that it's uh, mainly a fun for financial considerations. I mean, the um, the market has been tough uh, for for the shipping industry, and uh, they they were looking for a way to boost their profits, and uh, one um, one way to boost their profits is. Uh, um, on the beaches of India. So um, the company itself has stated that they um, expect that they will make an extra $150 million of, of profit by having their ships scrapped on beaches in India rather than using facilities in China. So again, we, can, we, we come back uh, to to the question that uh, you have asked before. It's all, it's all about money.
1: Certainly there are statements that we can read uh, by them, from them, and even on their own website I've had in front of me for a day or two here, uh, the announcement from May 2016 that you just basically explained uh, that they're going to start to uh, break down ships in in uh, Alang, specifically in the Sri Ram Yard, and if you go look at the Sri Ram uh, website. It's its very nice. I mean, it's a simple website that a 10 year old could make, but still, it looks very nice in terms of uh, announcing that they're certified. They use words like green. It it sounds all very good, even in Maersk's press release, because of course they have someone who does this well. Uh, they say, look, we're going back to Alang, but we're going to Alang with a new spirit, as you just mentioned. It sounds like there's a possibility here for, yes, we're going back to India. But we're actually, as you said, going to invest, and and here's the next part of this story. H- how did it come out? W- why do we know, how do you know, that in fact Maersk hasn't done what they promised uh, in terms of investing, in terms of doing things different, that this particular yard is actually socially and environmentally responsible compared to others in along. we
3: raised raised uh, critical questions openly to Mashka on their U-turn Back to India. And Mashk has been unable to answer the many critical questions we've had. And I guess this prompted interest in especially uh, the Danish public. And so what happened was that uh, some investigative journalists in Denmark decided to go and see for themselves and visit the Sri Ramyad uh, to see what, uh, if Mashk, what Mash was saying is, is really true. and. Um, their report uh, which is published on the Danwatch uh, website clearly shows that Mashk is uh, not up, uh, breaking uh, their vessels in a way um, uh, in the way they have presented it um, in the media this is the, lar- the world's largest ship owner um, with a huge fleet and they
2: know that they will always have vessels that will have to be uh, sold for, for for scrap. So what we expect is a, is, a, is a long-term investment. So rather than pocketing that extra profit, why do not why do they not take that money and invest it in a proper facility? And by investment, I do not only mean to kind of uh, you know send uh, one uh, engineer on the ground who's the, the ground who's then meant to kind of. Supervise whether the yard uh, is in line with the, with a paper standard. No, but what I mean by investment is investment in infrastructure in a model yard, if if the intention is really to to substantially improve the conditions in India. But we haven't seen any of this. I mean, they just accepted the status quo in that facility. Uh, and went there without any kind of further environmental impact assessment. There's no proper environmental monitoring. Um, They even hired their own consultant um, who flagged a lot of uh, concerns and said, listen, there are uh, pollution risks, there are risks risks related to occupational health and safety, and they just didn't look into these risks before going. I mean, there was very little time between the day when they said, we're going back to India, and the day... Uh, their first uh, ship hit the beach. There was no time to actually improve things. Um, and this, this was not what, what they had promised uh, before.
1: What happens now? And I'm curious here, for example, for the ship breaking platform, uh, you've got this, you've got the investigative journalist story, you've got Maersk, uh, as you say, not really responding or responding through very strange means and the consultant who's saying, well, actually there are problems. What do you do? What are your next steps now, probably that you're in the middle of uh, as an organization?
3: Well, fortunately, the stories in the Danish press have also prompted reactions uh, in Denmark, by the Danish Parliament, by Mask's investors. So of course we're in in constant contact with other people that can also influence Mash. Uh, but but our aim is to really get Mask to understand that, If they want to be uh, continued, uh, to be understood as a responsible company, they need to have a responsible ship recycling policy. And they should um, adhere to a policy that is in line with European environmental law. Um, We've just had one of the major competitors of MASH, Kapak-Lloyd, a German container ship company, commit to using facilities that will be listed on the upcoming EU list of approved ship recycling facilities. This hmm. is what Maersk should be doing to prove their efforts towards sustainable ship recycling.
2: So there are other companies that prove, that show, that it's possible. I mean, in, in their uh, official reaction to to uh, Danwatch's investigations in Alang, I mean, MERS doesn't even go into the details of what the journalists have found. They, they just fully ignore it. Uh, and they uh, argue that uh, the company can actually not afford to do clean and safe ship recycling. I mean, this is just incredible. I mean, of course they can afford it. Uh, it's just a question of uh, making long-term financial planning and ensuring that you calculate the costs for proper uh, recycling into uh, you know the way that you finance uh, and, and operate your ships. If you of course uh, don't do that and then you know the day comes when your ship has to go for for uh, for demolition uh, and you go well uh, now I have to make the maximum profit well yeah then maybe clean and safe ship recycling is not really affordable but it's a question of, of long-term planning and we expect from one of the world's leading uh, shipping lines to do such planning uh, for the sake of uh, their, their, I mean, responsibility for for people and and the planet.
1: When we, when it comes to economics, the world of shipping right now, for Maersk, for example, uh, I figured lower oil price. Uh, they're in the business of ships going around the world, delivering things. I thought it would be a pretty good time in terms of well, in terms of that cost. But is this considered some kind of crisis time for these shipping companies?
3: Mashke is uh, an interesting case uh, with regards to that uh, within the container shipping uh, sector. Mashke is a company which built uh, one of the largest container ships in the world, the Triple E. And uh, in building that ship, of course, they knew and know that many of the smaller container ship uh, ships will need to uh, get out of the market um, for the, uh, for the uh, Triple E to be... Uh, an investment worth having uh, taken to build it. So, I mean, MASHQ, whilst building the largest container ship in the world and knowing that many vessels will need to go to the scrapyard, uh, they've not really looked into finding sustainable solutions for the scrapping of of all these ships.
2: And, I mean, to whatever industry you you talk, uh, they're always in a crisis. Um, so, I mean, you know, if you tell the car industry that they have to, um, you know, be responsible for p- proper car recycling, they will tell you, oh, we're in a crisis and, uh, you know, the European car industry is going to um, die if we have to take care of the recycling. Well, they're still there and, uh, you know, they haven't uh, vanished from the planet's surface. So, I mean, the same the same was true for the shipping industry. I mean... As Ingall said, I mean, NGOs, um, and we have been working on this issue for, for many, many years. And uh, even, I mean, before the, the financial crisis, the shipping industry was not willing to um, to, to pay its fair share for, for clean and safe recycling. So even at a time when uh, the market was uh, extremely good for the shipping industry, that was not on their agenda. So, you know, whenever you ask them, they will find another excuse why they, they can't, pay their, their share of, of, of proper recycling.
3: Now and then, we take you to places you've never been before. Exotic places, the stuff of dreams. We're going to do that again tonight. But the ship beaches of Bangladesh belong more in a nightmare. We all know how ships are born, how majestic vessels are nudged into the ocean with a bottle of champagne. But few of us know how they die, and hundreds of ships meet their death every year, from five-star ocean liners to grubby freighters, literally dumped with all their steel, their asbestos, their toxins, on the beaches of some of the poorest countries in the world, countries like Bangladesh. Clémenceau was, was the first ship I worked on uh, as a campaigner on, on ship recycling and um, the Clémenceau, I mean of course it was the French courts that obliged the French government to take the ship back to be broken uh, in Europe. And there's a huge difference between the government-owned ships where uh, where responsibility and ownership is very clear and the commercial fleet uh, where it's very difficult sometimes to really find out who owns a ship um, and also because maritime legislation and within the shipping industry is the flag state um, which is responsible. Uh So you end up having all these uh, small uh, Pacific islands um, actually uh, having all these, sh- these ships registered under their flag and, and it's sometimes difficult to hold these companies responsible.
1: But there is something I want to ask you and it's a challenge uh, you face and I face, as even as a, a podcast producer, that classic question, how do you get people to care? And I don't say this callously, right? Um, as we speak, uh, I can see in front of me how people's lives are impacted and why it matters. But of course, we exist in this larger internet, this this the constant news feed, the scrolling, uh, the social media. Um, h- how do you go about, uh, especially, you know, the average person, say, in Europe, uh, getting them to find this issue to be important? Because I think you do want... Uh, the public involved. I know, of course, also government officials, you mentioned Danish parliament involved. How do you go about connecting people's lives to this issue where they they may not feel, you know, oh, shipping, Maersk, I I don't know, you know, that kind of attitude.
2: One difficulty with with the shipping industry is that uh, people, I mean, you know, the average man is somehow remote from from the shipping industry. I mean, the shipping industry operates mainly somewhere out there on the high seas and they're Hmm. um, they're not really visible for for us as uh, as citizens as consumers, um, and uh, this is a big advantage for the shipping industry. I mean, they don't have to kind of uh, explain their consumers uh, how they behave. Um, so this is why we we, we are focusing um, a lot on their business partners uh, because the shipping industry. I mean, of course, they have they have clients. They have. Uh, Uh, institutions, financing them, giving them money to construct ships and operate ships. So these people are actually um, those who have a lot of leverage in in this situation. Um, So as Ingvall has mentioned, I mean, for us it's it's key to, for instance, convince and work with uh, investors, with banks that have large shipping portfolios to tighten up their sustainability criteria. Um, because this is what um, this is when shipping lines actually feel the pressure. Um, but then on the other side, there are also um, the, the companies that produce uh, consumer products. I mean, those that own the cargo that is shipped by the by the shipping lines. So if you have uh, uh, big uh, textile retailers or uh, whatever kind of consumer goods, I mean, these companies also have an interest in. Um, in ensuring also for the consumers and for us as, as as citizens and consumers that their products are shipped in a in a in a clean and safe way and that the shipping is, is sustainable. So for us these are kind of the key um, people to to convince to um ultimate ultimately make the shipping industry um more more sustainable. But of course we also try to I mean reach out to um, to kind of. A wider public. I mean, this is why we, we, we work with journalists, uh, in, with with mainstream media that can kind of make this uh, issue more um, more um, known to, to to a wider audience, and um, and uh, yeah, and of course, I mean, for instance, in the case of Maersk, I mean, Maersk has a very strong brand, and they have a reputation, and they also have a lot of people working for them, and mm. uh, I'm sure that. Uh, not all of their employees are happy um, about this this scandal which is currently evolving in in the Danish media. I mean, um, I guess uh, the average Danish citizen considers himself or herself as living in a country which has very high environmental standards, where social standards are are extremely important. Um, So of course um, Maersk as a a brand in Denmark, but also as an employer, has a reputation to lose. Uh, So this is why, um, I mean, the media, media reports in Denmark have been
3: very crucial for us. Well, Danwatch has, uh, has uh, published uh, their articles now in English as well so um, definitely go and watch. Uh, check out Danwatch's website. And then there's a lot of information on our uh,
2: website uh, shipbreakingplatform.org. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter um, we have regular regular newsletters for people who are more interested in the issue so we're happy about new followers
1: That was Patricia Heidegger and Ingvild Jensen from the Shipbreaking Platform, speaking to us from Brussels. It's an odd thing to think about uh, 10 years going by from a time where this issue, although it wasn't even new back then, but even in 2006, on this program, we were talking with Dilip D'Souza, a uh, Mumbai-based journalist, and we were talking about the shipbreaking industry and, and how bad things were, and here we are 10 years on, and maybe some things have changed, but you, you get to hear about how many things have not, and... It's, it's a bit disappointing. It all I guess it also reminds us of how slowly things change or how easily we take a step backwards for every step forwards we may take. But let's see what happens. At least now there's more people talking about these things, more places to talk about them, including podcasts, so, so many podcasts, and more people willing to talk about it. I can say that it's a lot easier now than it was 10 years ago to reach out and ask people to talk about these things. So that about does it for today's program. Uh, I encourage you to read more on this subject. It'll certainly be back on this podcast as uh, material. And actually, that's a good segue, because next month, November 7th, I'm setting sail, or perhaps we should say taking off, for India. Destination India is the project. It's going to be podcasts and a few articles written. Uh, We'll see Dilip D'Souza in Mumbai Uh, Indeed, 10 years since we did that first podcast together. And, well, we'll be visiting with lots of friends and new friends and interesting individuals to teach us about India in 2016. And I want you to join me. Uh, You can even help fund it. Uh, There's always the support button on citizenreporter.org. Various ways to support this program. I mean if you're interested in the kind of topics that we're going to discover in india so that's up to you i leave it up to you i do this work because i love it and i love to share it with you and i hope that these things somehow click with you as well all right so the web address is citizenreporter.org on the twitter if you want that stuff i'm at bicycle mark on facebook we're there as well and uh, i'll talk to you really soon thanks for listening see ya see ya And you went there specifically to to see this uh, phenomenon that is so often talked about?
0: Yes, uh, I've actually heard about Alang for years and always wanted to go. And there was an opportunity then in July 2004 because another friend of mine who's a photographer got an opportunity, he was asked to go take some photographs. So he called and asked if I'd join him and I said, okay, good, and that is how I went. It's it's in some ways actually a spectacular place for photographs, uh, as you can imagine, because you have these huge ships up on the beach, and you never see things like that. And uh, so it was in that way a very special place in some ways. You know, I'm I'm trying not to talk about the misery right now. Well,
1: uh, not to focus on the misery at all, but um, you've been there, so describe some of the scene and the sounds and the sights and the smells.
0: Well the overwhelming impression i have even now you know year and a half later the overwhelming impression is of uh, uh, these blow torches you know that are fired by cylinders of gas because everywhere around you you have these guys with these blow torches trying to uh use that, use that to cut away uh, sheets of steel, and to cut those sheets of steel into little strips, and all that kind of thing. Hmm. There's also a lot of hammering that's going on because people are using hammers to break apart uh, huge uh, slabs of steel, and that's really what it's about. You know, there are these, these guys who just swarm onto these ships and and tear it apart essentially by hand and with hammers and blow torches, and uh, so you see that all over the place. You see these ships, enormous ships, some completely. Uh, you know, still unbroken because they've just come, some are, you know, half broken, some are just a shell.